Welcome to podcast number two of Have You Heard the Latest? If you know us from podcast number one, you'll know that we were called Truth Seekers on behalf of looking for both factual and wisdom-oriented truth. However, when we, when we looked up Truth Seekers, we found nothing but conspiracy theorists. So realizing that, we doubled down on what we want to definitely accomplish, which is provide thoughtful responses spontaneously given, thoughtfully uh, thoughtfully contrived. Uh, and today we're going to be taking a look at Tim Ferriss' show, episode number 264. Uh, Tim Ferriss is an author most probably popularly known from either the 4-Hour Work Week or the 4-Hour Body. And the specific episode we're looking at is he had investor, founder of... Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio, and they go over a number of useful topics that we're going to get into right now. Uh, where do you want to kick it off, Tom? So the interesting thing is to give some context around who Ray Dalio is. And in particular, he runs the world's largest hedge fund. And a hedge fund is an investment uh, that's basically has an unrestricted ability to invest across the world and do all kinds of funky trades, whereas and is often limited to high-end investors. So you have to typically have at least a million dollars, let alone to get into Ray Dalio's funds. Um, you know, you may you may have to be a large pension fund with you know a hundred billion or, or ten billion or one billion, you know, that kind of thing based on what the hedge fund is. And in that universe, you have unusually smart people all competing against each other because you can make quick money um, many times over because you can bet on the world economy and its stocks and bonds and so forth moving around. So you have this like, you know, like chess would bring a lot of smart people to it. Hedge funds brings unbelievable talent. And within that talent, he winds up being one of the number one guys, um, and his style and or, or I should say his advice to people winds up being unusually uh, thoughtful and relatable and something that you can actually use. Like he's kind of approachable, so he's very interesting to me always because of that dual um, property of both very high end, super smart, but then pretty um you know enjoyable to listen to so let me ask you as someone who uh listened to dalio on this how did you find him to be yeah it's, for a guy that's worth uh i'm just looking at it now even 17 billion dollars he just seems like a regular guy very down to earth seems to really come off as having figured out who he is which is a trait I often see in, in usually the people that are at like the top of their field have this trait where they're super comfortable and they kind of get what they know and get what they don't know. So that's what they can talk about. And then they're very comfortable in knowing who they are, which makes them down to earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dalio just completely encapsulates that to me. Mm -hmm. um, and his first major point that you and I both identified when we shared our notes was that he leads off with that very uh, specific point about making mistakes and uh, that he wasn't, he wasn't right. It's not like he didn't get where he was be from being right, but get where he got where he was from being wrong and then learning how to deal with that.
Let me first say that, by the way, uh, I'm a professional mistake maker. Uh, You know, being in the markets or being an entrepreneur requires one to uh, bet against the consensus. And when one does that a fair amount of times, you're going to be wrong a fair amount of times. And I've learned a lot more from my mistakes. So I just want to let you know that any, any perception that being right is part of it. No, the main thing is knowing uh, what you don't know and how to deal with it. Um, so, you know, did that hit you as hard as it hit me? Because for me, that was like a big sigh of relief almost of like, oh yeah, like you have to just keep going forward and stumble. And the stumbling is actually the growth part. I mean, it's really an interesting idea because we're not oriented toward failure at all. We're oriented towards growth in our society, it would seem. Yeah, and the thing he does well is he draws that connection that the growth comes from the failures. That the reason he's able to keep pushing forward is because he can learn from his failures. And even he talks about how it's like a cliche at this point, right? Like, you learn from your mistakes. But the way he unpacks it and the the way he views mistakes is around his belief systems and what really hit me is when he says he's like a big transition in my life is i went from thinking like okay i believe x to well why do i believe x and your failures are going to force you if you're aware enough Mm -hmm. to confront that reality of i believe something which is why i made this a certain decision right and then that decision failed. And the prudent thing seems to be to then analyze, well, why did I think this way? Were my belief systems strong or was there a faulty system in there that led to this mistake happening? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that really, it made it real to me because it's something I can relate to. And it's something you're not specifically told as often as, you know, learn from your mistakes. You you just hear that so often. But to frame it from a belief system, because I'm a person that's very firm in his beliefs and has been very adamant in my beliefs over the years and recognized in myself that uh, I was able to experience personal growth when I too did that sort of thing and begin challenging, well, why do I believe these things? Are these actually good beliefs? And not just blindly believing them. Yeah, it it resonates. I was thinking about the basic way that we take exams and it's not as if you get a second opportunity to then say, ooh, I didn't do well here. I should have studied this area more. Uh, Allow me to take it again. Instead, you basically live with the grade. Now, right? It's it's free. It's fundamentally like a, you know, our assist our education system kind of gears you up, not to embrace failure, and try new things, but to instead sort of you know just try to get over the hump. It it's it's interesting that this advice is is potent, and of course Ray Dalio he embeds it you know he embeds it all the way into the company culture, and into the way he makes stock decisions, and it's all like these little. Um, ways in which he's harnessing failure. Um, any thoughts on yeah. the education system and that whole how it's kind of shocking to us? Yeah, so the education system is something we both have 
thoroughly enjoyed Ragion over the years and sort of looking at the various faults it has. But I'd actually say there's a really simple tweak that can be made that can take our current mindset, which is just on to the next one, take the next test, um, and apply it closer to what Dahlia is talking about and learning from our mistakes. And to me, it would be this. You have so many quizzes and tests over the course of your standard school year. Specifically, I'm thinking like high school. And if you were to simply look at, okay, let's say you have 20 quizzes uh, per school year. Instead of treating each quiz like its own entity, because the information's new, Mm -hmm. you would treat it as the same entity that it ultimately is in that the format of the quiz is going to be the same. So if you began taking this mindset of, okay, I didn't fail the quiz, let's say, because I didn't necessarily know the information. It's that, what were my study habits around this quiz? What were my, what was my approach on handling the quiz, on even taking the quiz itself? And whether it's multiple choice, whether it's an essay, whether it's short answer and applying that and being able to learn then from the mistakes of why you were doing poorly on each quiz. So I don't think we would then need to dramatically change our mechanisms for taking the quizzes. All we would need to do is have our teachers teach the children better habits around learning on why they're not succeeding and not frame things so much on a, oh, you just didn't know the information. Yeah, fixed. Yeah. Waiskin, he references someone else, I forget, who references the fixed versus growth mindset and how we teach our kids that either you are good at this or you're not instead of how hard you worked on it and, like you said, your habits over time. And uh, he, Dalio, when he says it, he's using this idea for his uh, lessons learned in investing, and he, but he has to learn lessons too in entrepreneurship. And when he talks about it, he mentions how it's risk-taking in both areas, entrepreneurship and investing, that he uses it in. And the entrepreneurship one is that the one that most people engage in. And it would be interesting you know, to think, I guess it reminds me of the Scott Adams failing forward and trying to stack skills to use failure to your advantage. But it's sort of the same kind of thing where you're trying to harness failure so that it doesn't take you down and grow from it and it's interesting so part of that's not having all your chips in one thing and then part of that is sort of an accumulation that happens afterwards where you just keep finding yourself in a better situation so like Scott Adams will say if you fail with a business but you walk away with the skills that you develop from that business then you're failing forward you're using failure well Mm -hmm. interesting that like that's you know that hmm it makes a lot of well, sense when you hear it. Well, it may be one of those universal things. Is right, what it is. exactly. Like, can you develop a way so that when you're failing, it's still, you're growing anew even stronger? And the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and even, I think a simple word to even tie failing into is perspective. Is if you have, we'll just keep the test analogy going, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you fail test number one of the year, right, you get a literal F. Now, your perspective is going to matter there. 
It's, is your perspective that there was this isolated entity of a test and you failed it? And that now is a loss in your, your book. Or is your perspective that it's an entire school year, this is test one of seven, let's say, and that you're simply using this failure as a tool to do better at the following yeah. six. Yep. Yep. So perspective there is is very or it's almost very like, important, I would say. Yeah, almost like in real life, if you failed a particular topic area because the test was in January. But but through studying for the test and so forth, you got some baseline of information and then like suppose two weeks later, if you retook the same test and could get a hundred on it or or high nineties, why should we stick our kids with the failures? Like why are they unable to go back and improve? Because in life you can basically oh I'm not good at this now, perfect. Uh, I I can just put time into it. But yet kids have to live with the there. Oh I didn't know it then. You know it's just kind yeah. of like a funny a funny uh. Well it's also trick. like a a two a twofold thing where it's like ultimately you're studying for that test for that day it's not like the kid doesn't know that this test is coming sure no yeah agreed uh to me a bigger thing is not trying to come up with some crazy system where you can take three separate tests that are all on the same topic and you can refine it i think it's more important to to say okay what did we learn from this instance because even I would say life is a little like that where, okay, you have some business opportunity and you fail at it. You don't get to go back and like retake that business opportunity uh, on a true. lot of occasions. That's definitely true. But There's for your next business opportunity, you may have learned some key things. Ah, I wasn't very good at relationship building and it, it, it left me in a couple spots where I didn't know the right people and I couldn't find the right tools. So yes, when the next one comes around... You learn those things. I think the main toxic I'm reacting to is when folks are like, oh, I'm a C student. You know, oh, Ugh, he's yes, an I A student. And it's just like, uh, oof, you know, it's. Well, that's an identity yeah, thing. It doesn't. Too. Right. And it's something with the grade and, you know what I mean? That and the identity with the grade. Correct. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's that's yeah. the key thing is it doesn't really is not necessarily identify exactly. Completely agree. Yeah, it doesn't frame it well, and even thinking about it, like I didn't draw this connection necessarily while listening to the podcast, but Dahlia talks about making mistakes, right, and learning from your mistakes, and then I just kind of thought about this perspective thing, and mm -hmm. it's funny that that he has this whole look at history. Mm -hmm type mentality? I believe that basically everything is another one of those. In other words, almost everything happens over and over and over again through history. And that the key to success is to identify what one of those it is and to look how it's worked in the past many, many, many times. And then to understand the cause effect relationships to develop one's principles for dealing with it. Uh, he makes this point of like everything is one of those and what he means by that exactly. is everything that's kind of happening now has kind of happened before so it's like something something happens and uh, the specific thing he looks at or mentions as an example is like populism today versus populism in the 30s 
and it's like you could say if everything is one of those it's like oh this is kind of like that situation in the 30s with populism and what he's really talking about is perspective and being able to say okay this thing that's happening may seem scary it may seem like it's unprecedented unprecedented but mm-hmm. maybe it has happened before and if you can blow out your perspective again and, and zoom out all of a sudden you could say oh yeah on this timeline of history this has happened five times in, in exactly. the past 50 years exactly so he, he's really speaking in perspective in a couple of different ways yeah it's like he's taking advantage of the fact that we've been here before and how can we learn from that failure? Well, at least we have the lens. You know, we can relate this one to that one. No, I mean, and he's doing that a lot when I've seen him speak. Is he, uh, especially around investing too, he'll bring back years in which something, this is sort of like that period, sort of like that period. It's really, it's interesting when I hear it too, because at some fundamental way, even though I agree that uh, we should use history, the area to me is interesting too when you can see then the areas where the current is not like history and you have some exponential things happening these days which is kind of interesting so i would love to hear more you know he sort of says in passing the idea that i'm thinking about today is what the i think he says the bottom 60 percent of the global population will be doing uh yeah. in the new economy and it's like, what is there a comparison in the past for this for some of these things, right? So that was interesting too. Uh, I, I don't know if that struck you as well when he said that in passing. Well, it, it's interesting too. Be, yeah, he talked about how he li- he looks at two. There's two distinct different uh, populations in the world, like that uh, below sixty percent population, and then everyone else. But. Even if it is unprecedented, that is another thing about history that's so important is you can then properly identify the unprecedented. If you don't understand perspective and you're – let's say you're always zoomed in. You're always one year, one year, one year, one year. Then everything kind of seems unprecedented and you can't really tell what's unprecedented and what you just simply don't have enough information about. So I don't think an eye towards history necessarily rules out uh, something it helps really it. being like a phenomena. Yep. Exactly. It emphasizes it. Yep. Exactly. Very similar um, relationship between him and his algorithm. So, so his, he uses it like he plugs in the criteria so that when he's looking at a new problem, all of his old criteria are running with all of these sort of like um, checklists of these are the properties you want in an investment. And then the computer will spit out, hey, do you want this or not? And it's not dogmatic. Like, like for example, you can study history, right? And it's not dogmatic like, ooh, it must be this way. But then even when you deviate from it, it gives you a clearer model, like you're saying, because you're seeing where you're deviating. And a lot of investing is like that. You're looking for comparisons and then looking how the current situation is not like and is like previous things. But then it's like, I guess that's true in most of life, right? Is you're constantly sort of have models of how life is going to be and then things break it, 
but you're happy because hey, Ooh. without that model, I wouldn't have been able to see where it deviated. Wow. Yeah, uh, I, I just really drew the connection when you said that that it's like life between why people deal with uh, existential crises. And you mentioned that it's about dealing with sort of what you think is going to happen and then what is actually happening Mm -hmm. within the context of that algorithm. It's like that is kind of what life is about in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. is is being able to take the information you've already been given, Mm -hmm. make your best guess, and then kind of check against the results mm-hmm. you're like okay mm-hmm. based upon everything i know about this situation x will happen exactly. and a, a lot of times x happens right. exactly. but sometimes y happens and and then what so i'm, I'm curious i'm curious if, if these ideas are actually just so universal that you can literally just apply them to anything. Right, uh, right. Well, because, and, and the, the interesting thing about the model you, you just set up is you're expecting X and then Y happens. So then, that's life, right? Expect X, Y happens, right? And so, okay, then the key is, in the next round, you know a little bit more. Now you know X and Y, you know, you're expecting, right? So then, yeah. you're right? So each iteration, it's like if you can learn and not get blown out, which is an interesting point. Like in investing, blown out means at some point your investments, I guess, theoretically go to zero or simply go down so much that your clients pull their money away from you. So you have some like blowout, but investors go through that. In life, I guess it would be, it's, I'm not exactly sure what it would be, but it seems like Scott Adams and Ray Dalio, they're building systems that deal with failure and that's related to this expectations and then breaking expectations and then growing again. Right, it's kind of like it's part of the fundamentals. So, I, I wonder how universal it is too. It seems you have to do like in creativity, you have to create a draft, and it has to exist outside of you. Go to sleep, wake up, look at it, and now you have new ideas. But you have to actually make the draft, you know. So yeah, hmm. yeah, and it's interesting. It, it's it's funny too because even that mechanism within itself is a mechanism. Like, the idea that Dalio very much has this emphasis on learning from his mistakes, uh, keeping an eye towards history, that stuff seems isolated, but that's all a process within itself, yep. uh, right? That's, that's why he's writing this book, or this, well, that's why he wrote this book, Principles, and he kind of talks about these individual principles. And collectively, they create this process in his life where he can tackle all these sorts of different situations because he has these mechanisms in place. Something happens, he can he knows to learn from the mistake. How does he learn from mistakes? He looks at history. And it becomes this way to live your life and you create these processes separate from you. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And then you can riff on it. Wow. Isn't that a funny pattern we see show up, right? Oh, it seems like all the best minds sort of do these sort of things. And to to Ferris's credit, Tim Ferris, if there's one thing this man is obsessed with, it's morning routines. Yep. Uh, he loves asking every single person pretty much that's on his podcast 
what their morning routine is. And I've always kind of, you know, laughed and joked about that. He has to ask that question always. But now that I think about it, it's like maybe not morning routine is the specific thing, but the idea of routine and process and what do the best people in a wide variety of fields do as their process. What are these processes? Because that's all life really is, isn't it? A bunch of processes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, right. Yeah. So, like, a great question is, ooh, why would Tim Ferriss be so naturally intrigued with morning routines? And it's in part because he's got some shared knowledge that experts have that life is strangely about Oh, okay. Example within the podcast, um, the recommendations that Dalio makes to his son when his son is recovering from sort of a life of partying and so forth around 27, having some existential crises, drug use, stuff, maybe stuff like that. And, uh, you know, his recommendations involve things like meditation and involve things like going to sleep on time. Um, and both of those are embodied in the morning routine because when you wake up and meditate, for example, it's one big proactive way of you know, building up a resistance to being carried around by your thoughts. And then it has benefits throughout the day. And going to sleep on time is similar where it's like, how could that be so important? Powers, you know, it powers your whole life. So interesting how these things trace back into the you know, seemingly simple human things. And the highest end thinkers are quoting them. That's the paradoxical thing, right? Like the smarter, the smartest guys in the room are saying simple human things, right? How absurd. Yeah, and it's interesting too. So right here, Dalio has this quote that he mentions about meditation and how to start, right? He says the following. Transcendental meditation is a practice uh, that takes one from a, one's conscious mind to a, into almost a subconscious state and allows one to relax and, and it's almost a blissful experience. It, it relieves all stress. And, and it's really from the subconscious where creativity comes from. I mean, if you think about it, um, one doesn't, go muscle creativity like doing a mathematical calculation or something it's really like if you're ultra relaxed maybe you take a hot shower and these great ideas come to you or you're sleeping and these things pop up now what i find so interesting about that quote specifically is how realistic he makes it so you talked about the importance just now Mm. and and these things and I'm not someone who's really ever been able to consistently get into meditation. It's like I understand how it could be beneficial. Right, exactly. But the but when Dalio says it's kind of like you're in a hot shower and then like your best ideas come to you. Now, I, I think we can all relate to that, right? Well, like so many people are like, oh, yeah, when I'm in the bathroom is when I come up with the best ideas. It's like, well, what he's really talking about is relaxing and that's exactly what he says right he says subconscious he's like it's in your subconscious it's when you can truly relax and framing meditation that way 
doesn't make it seem like this crazy practice that, you know, your friends are going to talk about behind your back. It's like, wow, okay, I'm letting my subconscious mind take over through deep relaxation. It's like you have suddenly made meditation incredibly approachable by framing it that way, Dalio. Exactly. He links it right to that benefit. Yes, and there's he quotes two benefits that stand out to me. One, creativity, which is uh, almost underrated. I typically hear the first one talked about, which is uh, energy, and he uses the word equanimity to mean uh, balanced. And sort of like you can imagine things are flowing through his day. You know, he's getting calls from clients. He's getting investment opportunities from his research associates. And he... And you have uh, positions going up and down, and he's got to just sort of be relaxed there. And then he uses the word ninja to describe sort of the <laughs> moving in and out of life's issues. So you see uh, it's a two-pronged benefit. Okay, one, you have the shower situation, like you said, where you're relaxed and then voila, it's coming out of you, right? A new idea that you never would have expected. That's the key. That's the craziest part about creativity is you can't write it down on your to-do list like, oh, invent this today. It just comes to you, <laughs> yeah. right? And then secondarily, he also gives you the the ninja um, analogy. And man, it's meditation in its very simple form. I don't use any mantra. I just sit 20 minutes quietly and let, and you know, just pay attention to your, uh, what's happening. That's basically it. And stay there for 20 minutes if you possibly can. And you'll find that your mind wants you to run away from it, which is fascinating. Like what, what is this that wants me to keep getting up, but you stay, stay, stay. And then throughout your day, you have a little extra. So I'm interested. That's very interesting to hear. I was going to ask you about that, knowing that you're not traditionally a meditator how Dalio influenced you. I believe he influenced me to start as well, interestingly, years ago. Yeah, his his framing of it, to me, did a slightly better job, uh, or not really better, but it resonated yep. with me more. The way he framed it from a, like, to me, he is emphasizing creation and ideas when he talks about it that way. Yep. The other most popular person I've heard talk about meditation is Jerry Seinfeld. Yep, exactly. Seinfeld referred to it a little closer to a recharge, like you said. Energy. Like yep. like better sleep, almost, exactly. is what he talked about. And that, so as someone who's been very good about his sleep schedule almost my entire life, I've, I've always been very good at setting a time and making sure I get enough sleep, and I generally get pretty restful sleep that didn't really resonate with me. Now, other people who are perpetually it's tired, it, it may hit them. Uh, yes. It's but almost a little... As someone who's trying to be creative... Yeah. Yeah. Which it, side it, 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 do you I, need? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And, and look, some people could could do both. And, and Ferris himself seems like some someone that needs both because he talks about his own sleep schedule being wacky. Uh, and obviously he's a creative type writing numerous books uh, running a successful business for probably over a decade now so he might need both and I only really resonate with the creative side other people that are tired but have a very uh, routine job may only resonate with the energy side but I think you'd be hard pressed to find a person that doesn't need either of those things sure exactly 
I like too. He emphasizes as well not to take it. He's like, you know, the important parts are that you do it for 20 minutes, sit there peacefully, and you know, and twice a day. Like that's the important parts. And even if you do it once a day, obviously you'll notice you'll just notice more power throughout your day. It works pretty reliably because uh, it's basically yeah, like your your thinking our thinking brains are all um, analyzing a lot of thoughts and our emotions get wrapped in that system of thinking and we over I find very interestingly creativity let's take that um, when I go to write if I'm thinking about writing like when I'm walking around in my room or cleaning up and I'm sort of like okay how can I figure it out what I'm what I'm gonna do in my head very bad very bad what's much better winds up being not thinking about it throughout the day and just trying to enjoy whatever it is I'm doing and then it sort of shoots up an idea. Oh, I didn't, you know what I mean? And like when you're in the shower, the, like why is that so good? Yes, it's like you're relaxed. Your attention is on like brushing your teeth or, you know, whatever. And then it pops up to you. So it's their, it, their relationship, meditation is one big practice that's just like emphasizing, right, relaxation paradoxically, which then helps you intensify Later on, it helps you get creativity. It has all these benefits. And you will it's funny how the mind wants to resist it. You know, that's what you'll notice especially. No, I don't want to do that. It's a waste of time. Let me just, you know what I mean? It's very funny how even people who meditate don't meditate some days, you know. Hmm. Even he said, I think he said two-thirds of the days only he meditates, right? So it's not like he's an everyday person. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. How much do you think people struggle with meditation and like you said the mind kind of fights it how much do you think that is inherent in our minds and how much do you think that is a product of our current society where we're constantly just um so occupied with things at all times and stimulated well anyone who's used instagram knows just <laughs> how frequently both you can look at new things and see people response see, see people's response to what you put out so you feel the attachment definitely to the to, to the things, and a lot of us don't have big lifelong goals, I believe. So um, and basically, we're not trained to make big lifelong goals. We're sort of trained to make uh, more short-term, safe goals that other people are doing, and so therefore, you feel all the bumps. So meditation is super effective for modern people, right? Because we're thinking, we're using our thinking brain to solve problems so often that it can't do its other function, which is relax, and then sort of when it's relaxed, it, it almost coils and then can release back to you um, a way to solve your problem. So, man, I think it's partly gonna be the human struggle is fundamentally relaxing your th powerful thinking brain. So that is, man, homo sapien, all of us. Now, modern society, I think, turned it up a notch from the stimulation perspective. Yeah, you would agree, right? So. Without a doubt. Uh, like I said, I, I can't relate. I, I've probably, I've never, I can say, give med, given meditation an earnest try. Like, you know, one way or another, this week, for one week, I'm going to try to meditate every single day. I've never done that. It's not, and it's hard to do it that way because that, that it almost undermines its the way you're wanting to do it. Basically, anytime you breathe through your nose is, and then release it is basically a mini meditation, as Eckhart Tolle would say. 
So one thing for, for sure is that meditation is not different than breathing. It's just in addition to breathing, you're often sitting down, like you said, in a routine manner. But just so folks know how I think about it, especially, and anyone knows, I mean, it's just, it's not that different from conscious breathing. But, sure. uh, yes, I, I agree. The mechanism yes, of meditation is not complicated. But the habit is more what I'm speaking to. Yep. In that, like any good habit, unless you ingrain it into your life, it's not going to become a habit. Mm-hmm. So no matter how good it is, it's like if, if you go to the gym one day and you're like, okay, the gym is great. You know, you come, you, you leave the gym and you feel great. You feel energized. You're like, this is amazing. It's a very similar feeling to how meditation can feel. So you mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, about the struggles Dalio's son had. And that that whole section to me was an interesting little thing. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I'd mentioned it to you before. Like There was one part of the podcast, uh, the Ferris podcast, that was a little tough for me. And that part was this this moment where Dalio and Ferris talk about um, Dalio's son and Ferris also has, I guess, struggled with depression and, and I guess, some suicidal thoughts, things like that. And Dalio drops this line about 20-odd percent of the population suffering from some kind of mental illness. And, and boy, that, that line really hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I'm someone that is very, I'm very wary of the culture that we've created around people not being enough and people being broken and then having to be fixed in some way, shape or form. And that's like a lot of how our modern, like, medical system works these days is that you've got this thing and we can fix it for you and i just found it almost ironic that someone like dalio who has instilled all of these habits in his his life these these deliberate habits and these processes that we were talking about early earlier learning from his mistakes understanding history transcendental meditation these, these are all things that he has applied as processes to his life. These are not innate to the human condition. He put these in, and they have made him successful in his endeavors. Mm-hmm. For someone to believe in these processes, but then at the, the same time say that in a very chemical way, almost a quarter of the population is broken, and that it's, they're chemically broken... I, I just have a hard time well seeing how, how it can yeah. be thought of that way. Mentally broken would probably be I mean what did he said I know I know what you're saying, and I agree with your fundamental point, which how ironic that the guy who solves everything with natural methods, the ultimate natural method solver for psychotherapy and for working with your own stress, right? How can this guy possibly? I don't know if he would die, if he would give everyone medicine like for it, but 
the diagnosis may be correct that we are suffering from a mental illness not but you're right the chemical imbalance part is always tricky because what comes first the unfif- you know the life that's not uh, functioning because of various real life circumstances that we can relate to or is it their chemical in their brains that you know uh, is the is the exactly. thing and it doesn't matter their chicken or the egg Right. So I would wonder what he would say about that. Uh, I did. I do agree that he does have a lot of answers to mental health. And when it showed up in his response, when his four pillars for his son, take medicine was one. So that yes. was, but, but he did brag a little bit about how he's been able to reduce that medicine over time. So I think, I think. He yeah. Was, so to me, that was kind of ironic almost even, you know, like, okay. And my only concern, why why this this mm-hmm. hits me so hard, is because we all know people that have been prescribed drugs too easily. So my only concern in situations like that is when you say, okay, one quarter of the population, and this isn't his statistics. It's not like he's a he got it from somewhere, and I'm sure they have some sort of reasoning and some sort of classification. I I understand that. My only point is that we've become a society that is very quick to give people the drugs before the other things, before seeing if it's these, that there's other issues in their lives that can be sorted out. And the the interesting thing that, that Dahlia points out with those four pillars is that yes take medicine is one of them but over time he's reduced uh, his son has reduced the amount of medicine he takes yep and that's clearly a product of these other pillars and his ability to work on his life and those three, it's not like those three yeah are. the other three were meditation yep. uh not taking other illicit drugs yep. um and getting to sleep before 11 most of the time being able to keep a regular healthy sleep schedule is essentially what he's saying and then the fourth one was uh, take your medicine now those other three things though are all life habits and the only thing that's changing he's not saying like get more and more strict with your sleep do more and more meditation Uh the only thing that's changing is the amount of medicine being taken here Uh so I just find it interesting that if the belief is that there is a literal chemical uh, default in your brain that's causing too much production of some chemical or not enough production of another, that over time, good habits are making that problem uh, so problem less. So at what point is it a, a default, so to speak, or or if? or a, a defect rather and at what point is it just like your life processes aren't aren't quite in order so i am just very sensitive to to labeling people that way and saying that they have a mental illness because the de facto treatment in our society for mental illness is medicine it is not meditation mm. it is not fixing the habits in your life so I yeah. worry about the connection exactly. there when when we're we're, we're attributing relatively I, I mean to say one in four people. You you meet four people, one of them has a mental illness. 
that that just seems like a bit yeah. of a loose classification to me. Yep. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I agree with your points. I really do. Um, I would wonder what he would say back to that. And uh, yeah, I completely agree with you, though. I mean, um, it, it's interesting to think what 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 we would do as a society if we did not have the drugs to uh, give to people. We'd have to use natural methods, and I think we would know what they are too. It would be exercise. It would be uh, sleeping on time. It would be connection with others, being part of a community. Oh, how about how he says uh, Ooh, great yeah. part, if you remember about that happiness part and how there's no correlation between intelligence and happiness. And the highest correlation with happiness winds up being whether or not people are part of a community. And you're like, of course, of course. Of Whenever course. you're with others doing something together it's and being with them – it's and it's genuine it's that is the best part of life right no when i heard that i was like oh yeah yeah that's because i've I've heard uh rogan mention it before and when he's really tying in that idea that it's not money that that's that's bringing happiness and it's not even intelligence the money one right that that's become a thing money can't buy happiness right but the intelligence one is interesting (sighs) because all of us that have have grown up with these existential crises, it's usually driven around us trying to reason the world, use our brains to defeat the world, and to achieve happiness with our brains. And for him to to bring up the topic that it's community that's making people happy, that it's relationships and connections with other people that actually bring our mm-hmm. happiness. Mm-hmm. Th- that that takes us away from the self. See, that that's the beautiful thing, yep. is that money, in, in a literal way, is about the self. Like, yes, you could, you could get more money to donate it, sure, but it's really about the self. So accumulating wealth is about just you. Your intelligence, obviously, is locked into your own mind. You cannot forge relationships only with yourself. You need the other person. You need at least one other person to forge a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is is something that he picked up on and for him to have such a big emphasis on. He talks about how important it is in his work environments for people to have this sort sense of community. And it's where he ties in honesty as well in that how do you build meaningful relationships with people it's honesty yep when he was asked by tim um what were your big successes that you can tell me about and his first response is kind of like well i can remember some of them but they don't really stand out to me compared to my failures and then he even says something else like um I can remember parties and being with people and you're like this dude remembers like the Bridgewater Christmas party instead of like the <laughs> trades they make you know that was sort of the visual I got and I was like wow that's hysterical you know like the jokes he said funny things that happened something like that and you're like wow wow no one thinks about that these days that that is like what you're accumulating We like we all just think about the money and tangible success and 
wow, that was so for the guy who has it all, that's what he remembers. That was fascinating. And the second thing I wanted to note about the intelligence thing was that Tim kind of walks into it because I believe the question Tim asks is something like, even though people are smart, they're not happy. And Dalio's like, yeah, they're not related, right? Like, and isn't that interesting, right? Because smart people get in their own way and or overthink things, I would bet, is a major source to substantial unhappiness. I would wonder if it's not, you know, detrimental. Uh, yeah, like inversely correlated, actually. Yeah, you know, so. Well, that, that line, like, ignorance is bliss, right? Like, not overthinking things can be a benefit. Uh, it can come with its own issues, but the the raw entity that relationships like the two he identifies specifically as an important thing is meaningful work in relationships what he calls meaningful full work i've always called fulfillment uh like personal fulfillment something yeah. you're working on and driving you in life is, is something you, know. you believe in exactly and that combination of relationships with other people and fulfillment uh, there, there really doesn't need to be a third thing. <laughs> like, they're that powerful. Like, explain to me a segment of your life that would not get checked off mm -hmm. if you're doing meaningful work that's fulfilling your life and you've got great relationships in your life. There is almost no way you cannot be happy. I think he says that too, right? So it's hard yeah. not to be happy when you have those forces on you. I know. So that it's, would mean that crazy. the unhappiness of today is from missing missing some of those. One or two well, or there's just something it's like the the tubes are clogged. You know what I mean? Like it's not flowing. Because almost like those things should be somewhat natural. Like, oh, you want to have a fulfilling life. Huh. Well, you only have to pick one path for you, so it shouldn't be that hard. And there's a lot of people to be with. And you're born with a lot of people to know. So it's like, it's very funny that he's saying these two things are what you need. And they're, but I guess they're not easy, right? Because you, they do need to well, be Well, we're very genuine, selfish. Right. We're very selfish as people. And unfortunately, I try not to rag on this too much, but like, we're not really taught these things. Now we're not really taught fulfillment and meaningful work because they give us too open-ended of an answer. So from the meaningful work perspective of things, what are we told growing up? You can be anything you want. You can do whatever you want. Well, yeah, that's, that's a nice open-ended thing. But it doesn't really direct us in a way that can breed fulfillment. <laughs> it's funny that because everyone Because it's so that. wide. Yeah, everyone quotes that because that must be the main career advice that we all heard. <laughs> it's like that's yeah, the, we've all heard it. That's basically the one sentence that we got, and then from there, no one had any idea further. You know, so that's funny. Yeah. No, it's never expanded upon. It's it's well, what do you want to do with your life? Or what are you it's yeah, like? You can it, do anything, and you have to like discover what you're good at, and then align it. It's like, and you don't pick you, right? Who's you, right? You don't pick what you're good at necessarily. You sort of have to discover, oh, these are my natural abilities. So let me now align them with something I like and then it will create. You don't just pick anything. 
that's you could i guess if you had unlimited passion and effort to do it you could probably like the human can do anything over time right because you basically fail forward until you get big enough to do it well our brain is just such a powerful machine for the most part that if we can learn from things we can we can really adapt very well but the the combination of that fulfillment i i even wonder how much they help each other in a lot of ways too because by having a lot of uh relationships in your life meaningful relationships and connections with other people you also get to find what makes you you right you you talked about just now learning what you're good at well a big part of learning what you're good at is also learning what you're not good at and in where you lack and a lot of that comes from the people and experiences you meet uh it's hard to have a comparison and to understand how accomplished or not accomplished you are at something uh or a topic unless you know enough people that you're like oh yeah yeah i uh i thought i was good with computers uh but you know my friend frank over here uh knows way more than i do it's like okay he understands that and it becomes this twofold thing where you then can build a relationship around that and and because you have this other person in your life you can foster this relationship and then gain that sort of knowledge and you also now know that okay maybe within this segment i'm i'm not that accomplished Mm -hmm. so i can either choose to focus on another segment of my life that i may know more about or i can choose to get better Mm -hmm. but to to bring it home i now have perspective i've got perspective on my own skills through the relationships i have with other people because i can now weight them so I was going to say, so if we had to create sort of a concluding Dalio stack, right? He's sort yeah. of talking about, so on one element, we have the practice of meditation, in which I've heard him say something like, it's the most important thing. It's a tri- Most of my success is attributed, attributable to meditation. And meditation embodies sort of two main benefits. One, the ninja-like quality of being able to take things a little bit easier. Like, the, like when people say the game slows down for me. It's a little bit like mm. that. Your life slows down a little bit. You're not so attached. And then secondarily, that relaxation triggers the subconscious mind as a challenge, shoots up ideas to you. And, um, wow, I mean, that's only one thing, right? Simultaneously, he's embodying similar principles in his systems, the people around him, and how he works with machines, and how he works with people, and how they all embody truth to discuss what's going on. And then not being destroyed by the failure but learning over time i mean it's so he has like it's basically he has like systems on systems on systems right to some extent right systems for the people systems for investing systems for his day so i guess you could stack any way you want but one of the yeah so what are some of the takeaways you you have in mind too there yeah the meditation one is hard to ignore as much as like we said i'm not a big meditation person it's hard to ignore how relatable he makes it and the benefits he speaks of so big takeaway meditation find a way to give it a shot i think it's the simplest thing i would say is like i love that yeah yeah just and and like just give it a shot like okay 
you're gonna try it and you know what maybe it, you wind up being someone like me and it's you don't stick with it like oh well so whatever you tried it like that's life so meditation i think is definitely one to put in there and then the other broad one is the thing i keep saying would be perspective it's keep in mind perspective and if you can keep in mind to not keep your perspective too zoomed in in life Ooh, right zoom out your perspective yes just keep yeah. zooming it out yep see it how do you study better zoom out your perspective get the bigger picture don't lose the forest for the trees and it's it's very applicable to a lot of things if you if you think about your current situation uh, we didn't really touch on it but but Dahlia does talk about this whole uh, psychological pain button thing where you have these moments of just being hit and you, you have these like brain moments where you're just like ah oh, you know you're just dealing with something it's like well if you can zoom out your perspective mm -hmm. and realize how small this moment is you'll be fine so I would say being able to zoom out perspective and then the final thing is what we just talked about with relationships and the importance of relationships with other people and having true and honest relationships with people and it's something that I don't know if you did it intentionally but recently what you've been able to do and build relationships with members of your family with like your cousins and your sister like has really impressed me personally because I know how naturally those things may not come. I know they don't really come to me uh, very naturally. And I think a lot of people have that thing where it's like, ah, family is just kind of family and it's it's this happenstance thing. Uh, but making a concentrated effort to build those relationships seems like they've, they've made a pretty positive uh, impact on your life and just from an observer standpoint. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're there to witness your own uh you know ways that you're trying to be good and then it hits it just has reflections back into you yeah you do yeah exactly you just be there with people and if you're there genuinely it has a feedback mechanism where it it improves all of your life later on you know yeah completely agree excellent man yeah so we would say that those are the big three then right i guess meditation perspective and relationships yeah i mean you could add f dealing with failure uh building systems around failure yep you know and harnessing it and then you know he does exactly he does a lot with the brain and relaxing the brain so that it could be channeling creativity right that's a i don't know i would i would say that's meditation for you right yeah, there fair enough it's like fair enough so I think it's fair to say that those are our main takeaways from this Tim Ferriss Show podcast with Ray Dalio. And next week, who knows who we'll go after. Maybe Ruben, something like that. Maybe there'll be another interesting Rogan. Maybe we'll get some Sam Harris down. But yep. you've been listening to uh, Have You Heard the Latest Podcast. And uh, I hope you join us next time, and I hope you enjoyed this.